0: Corinthians thirteen, page one one five four in the Czech Bibles.
1: And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love.
0: Evening, everyone. It's one of those passages that's so enjoyable, that's so easy to read, that my job is easy. It's just to get out the way, really, and let the passage, let Paul speak for himself uh, and not to dampen or lower the tone. What you were gonna see, not very interestingly, was the Britain's Got Talent final from last weekend which I didn't watch but I saw it on my newsfeed and whatever and it made me think about talent shows in general and what they're all about which is essentially a string of performances be it individuals or groups trying to impress audiences, trying to impress viewers, trying to impress judges and it's all about displaying your talents displaying the gifts and it's all aiming for victory, it's all a competition, only one person can win, only one group can take home the prize And it struck me that if you went to the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago, to which Paul wrote this letter, you'd have seen something surprisingly similar. Not the big stage, not the lights, not the costumes, but you would have seen performance. You'd have seen a whole string of people performing, displaying, showing their gifts. Especially gifts that were considered spiritual. There was no prize. But nonetheless, they wanted to impress, and ideally be more impressive than the person before and the person after. So Paul's really famous words in 1 Corinthians 13, perhaps his most famous words ever, are to be seen in that context. They're addressing that problem. And Paul wants to draw the Corinthians away from that unchristian competitiveness and towards something so much better. Chapter 12 ends with Paul saying, I will show you a still more excellent way. And that way is the way of love. And that is what chapter 13 is all about. You may well have heard it at a wedding. I've read it at a wedding. And you might think, therefore, that it's a soppy, romantic, wet chapter. But look how Paul starts. And you'll see that he goes in strong. His first point, how are we doing, Jeremy? His first point is that love is vital, love is vital. Remember, spiritual gifts were the trending thing in the church in Corinth. The Corinthians wanted to show off the gifts they thought God had given them. And Paul mentions three of those gifts in the first few verses. Let's read verses 1 to 3. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give what I possess to the poor, give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So there's gifts mentioned there, aren't there? Speaking in these other tongues or languages or prophecy. But Paul says, those things without love are nothing. They're entirely secondary to love. They're subservient to love. There'll be a bit more of what those gifts looked like in practice next week. But I hope you can see the point here that using those gifts without love to Paul is useless. And it's not that spiritual gifts are bad. In verse 3, he talks about giving to the poor, which we can all agree is good. But what is bad and what is useless is to display these gifts without love being behind it. So just as in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, Paul said that love should be the motivation for how we use our knowledge. And in chapter 9, he said love should be the motivation for how we use our freedom. So here, love must be the motivation for how we use our gifts. The thing Paul's li- Paul lists here, the tongues, the languages, the prophecy, these are things the Corinthian church valued. What do we value here at St Anne's? How might we put it? Would it be, if I give sermons, but have not love, I am no better than a car horn on commercial road. If I am on the PCC, but have not love, I am but an empty seat. If I give a huge amount of money to the building project, but have not love, I gain nothing. If I am selected for ordination, but have not love, I gain nothing. The more you think about it, the stronger it gets. Without love, our gifts, they come to nothing and they gain us nothing. Paul is serious, serious enough to apply it to himself. Did you see, he says, if I speak in tongues, if I have faith, but do not have love, etc." It's so easy to think that what Jesus wants for his church is for it to be impressive talented to look good and that's and that that's what he wants for us individually as well but what did Jesus say he said by this they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another and as he warned the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation a church without love is really not a church fit for purpose at all It's possible for a church to look good on the outside, but for love to get lost, as they focus too much on impressing one another with their gifts. And so, since it's possible to look good on the outside, but for love to get lost, well, how will we know if love is really there? How do we know what love looks like, what love is? Well, that's exactly what Paul goes on to say in verses 4 to 7. He shows us how love is seen, how it's displayed, and I think his big point as he does that brilliant thanks Jeremy is that love is not a competition is love displayed in deep overwhelming emotion or in hugs and kisses or in romance and roses well maybe but look what Paul focuses on here in verse 4 he says love is patient love is kind So if you want to see love, if you want to check for love, including in the church, look for kindness. Check for patience. Paul says love is displayed in how we treat one another, not just in how we feel inside. Patience and kindness, they're other person-centred, aren't they? Now showing patience and kindness might not get you up at the front of church. It might not get you in the spotlight. But that's okay, because love's not a competition. In the next few lines, Paul gives five things that love isn't. The first thing he says, love isn't, is he says, love does not envy. So a loving attitude doesn't crave the things that other people have, which our whole culture and marketing industry tries to shape us away from. The adverts, the social media algorithms, they condition us to want more, to constantly compare ourselves with others, to, be, to envy and to be jealous of the person who has the looks, the car, the house, the spouse. But that's not love. And then there's the other side of the coin in the rest of verse four. Paul says, love does not boast. It is not proud. So we shouldn't envy those who have the things, but nor should the people who have the nice things boast about it or be full of themselves because of it. The loving attitude is not to boast or to be proud. Don't be a show off, Paul says. Love's not a competition. Now envy and pride, they're really effective at making us rude and selfish. If we're caught up in a game of have and have nots, of impressive versus weak, then we're going to want to push others down to push ourselves up to get ahead in the game but verse 5 paul says love does not dishonor others it is not self-seeking but when people do dishonor us and they're selfish and it annoys us what's our natural non-loving response well it's anger isn't it and it's resentment But Paul's got us again, because the second half of verse 5, he says, love is not easily angered. And love keeps no record of wrongs. Do you feel Paul catch us all in our lovelessness? No one gets to opt out of love. The challenge to have a loving attitude is for those who are tempted to be jealous of the person who has the stuff they don't, and the person who has the stuff as well it's a challenge to the selfish and a challenge to those who are annoyed by the selfish. So whatever the relationship, whatever the position, there's always the opportunity for love. The reason why I think Paul gives this long list of things that love isn't, is to gently rebuke the Corinthians' attitude, their competitiveness. When church becomes an arena, a competition pit, you're bound to get envy and pride, and that will bubble up into anger and resentment. And no one, no one wants to join a church like that. And yet, churches become like that. It's not what Jesus wants for his church. It's perfectly fine to read this passage at a wedding, but Paul wouldn't be impressed with someone who's patient and kind to their spouse, but then angry and cold. To their Christian brother or sister at church. Nor would someone who keeps no record of wrong for their children, but mentally piles up the list of things people have done against them at church. Unchristian competitiveness and a lack of love leaves churches empty in more ways than one. But love is not a competition. And let me say that at St. Anne's, I don't think it's as bad as it was in Corinth. I see so much of the love Paul describes. But we all know it's imperfect. When I measured myself up against the list of things, Paul said, I found myself coming short. But if we inserted the name of Jesus in, if we said Jesus is patient, if we said Jesus is kind, if we said Jesus does not envy, Jesus does not dishonor others, and so on, well, we'd be speaking the complete truth. He is love personified. So, Paul has said love is displayed in how we treat one another, but in the next couple of verses, he shows it's displayed in how we treat the truth. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So, instead of rejoicing in the evil of unlove, as it were, the dog eat dog world, we can rejoice in the truth. The simple truth that for Paul is the gospel, which is that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, that completely turns things around, doesn't it? If Jesus is Lord, then it means love is ruling. Then it means it's not as simple as just impressing and beating down others, because the one who was crucified is now ruler of everything. It's on that foundation that we can have lasting love. And Christian love at that it's on that foundational truth that we can verse 7 have a love that always protects that always trusts that always hopes that always perseveres without Jesus our love would depend entirely on us in our weakness but Christian love doesn't depend on us it depends on him It depends on Jesus and his truth that again without jesus our love would depend entirely on us in our weakness but christian love depends on him in his truth he gives us the thing to trust in the thing to hope in the thing to persevere towards and that actually leads us on to how paul will close out his argument for christian love he's shown that love is vital he's shown how it's displayed in the church how it's not a competition and now his final argument is that love is forever other things will end he says including some of the spiritual gifts but love will not verse 8 he says love never fails or that could be ends but where there are prophecies they will cease where there are tongues they will be stilled where there is knowledge it will pass away so these spiritual gifts that the corinthians were so excited about so competitive about they serve a purpose for a time But the time is not forever. A time is coming when it will all change. The gifts are like temporary helpers, helping the common good of the church, the body of Christ. They strengthen us, they encourage us, maybe even give us more insights into the mysteries of God. But what we know is limited. My knowledge is limited, Richard's knowledge is limited. It's all limited. If I go to theology college, guess what? Their knowledge will be limited too. Even some special spiritual gift would only give me a tiny piece of the picture. See verse nine? For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But verse 10, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So there will come a time when we won't need these gifts anymore. Because we won't need to be built up anymore because we'll be finished, we'll be complete. Like all those tower blocks they're building at Wood Wharf, there'll come a time where they won't need to keep building them anymore because they'll be finished, perfected. That's the phrase Paul uses, completeness. When completeness comes, he's talking about the future moment, because obviously it's future, we're not complete yet, are we? When, and it must be the time when Jesus returns, when he wraps up the age of brokenness and brings the renewal of all things, the age of completeness. Paul doesn't describe or explain that moment in full. More will come in chapter 15 at the end of the letter. But of course, if he did describe it in full, it would kind of defeat his point, which is that we don't know everything yet. So, what Paul does instead is he uses two metaphors of what it will be like going from this broken age, incomplete age, to the age of completeness. The first is this. It will be like going, growing, from a child to an adult. Look at verse 11. He says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, I find it quite fun to imagine Paul as a little child, thinking and reasoning like a kid, squabbling with other children. Of course, it's what we all do growing up, and it's okay. It's natural, and it's appropriate for the age. It's why we're troubled with children being so exposed to loads of grown-up material. They aren't designed to take all that stuff in. They can't process it that early. But the childhood phase of life is temporary. Growing up has to happen eventually. And when we're grown, we mature, usually, some of us, sometimes. And so new ways of thinking up are on that's appropriate for that new age. And so the church today is still in its childhood. The spiritual gifts they're like helpers they're like nannies or teachers But there will come a time where we won't need that anymore now the second metaphor Paul uses is of seeing in a dim mirror compared to seeing face to face see verse 12 he says for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror then we shall see face to face So I did a little bit of learning about the history of mirrors for this. I enjoy that sort of thing. Uh, I was kind of surprised to learn that they had them in Paul's Day, but they did. And apparently the Romans helped spread the arts or technology of mirror making throughout the Empire. But they weren't very good. They were kind of lead lined. So they were really dark and you wouldn't see that much with them. And if you've ever tried to do anything complicated with a mirror, like cutting your hair in lockdown, you'll know it's hard. Everything's backwards, and that's in a kind of shiny modern mirror, let alone in the dim, dark mirrors they had in Paul's day. Until the New Age, our knowledge will be like that. It will be dim. It won't be full. But when Jesus brings the New Age, it will be like seeing face-to-face, clarity, real, like when you put on glasses and you didn't even know you needed them, and suddenly, wow, you can see everything so much clearer. Paul uses the phrase face-to-face, which is a fittingly personal way of describing it, since we will actually see Jesus face-to-face. Paul summarises what the two metaphors have been saying in the second half of verse 12. He says, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So there's a verse to memorise for people like me, so often full of questions about Christian faith I need to remember that now I know in part then I shall know fully even as I am fully known think of how well God knows you he knows every part of you he knits you together he knows you inside and out he knows the thought even before it comes to your head imagine knowing like that that's what Paul says it will be like then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. It will all make perfect sense. It will all make perfect sense. So all of this it relativizes those spiritual gifts that they loved so much and wanted to impress other people with. Paul says, Remember, they're temporary helpers. They encourage us, they guide us in what we know. But one day we'll know fully. We won't need their gifts. They will cease. But love, love is forever. How could it not be forever when the God we worship is a God of love and will be with him for eternity? Their satisfaction surveys in the new creation will all come back five star. And if anyone is asked by an angelic inspection team how they're feeling, the answer will always come back I feel loved. I feel loved. The Corinthians, they were valuing gifts and they were performing, but they were forgetting love. Paul has relativised their attitude to the gift. He's put it in their proper place and he's lifted up love as Christian virtue number one. It's even number one within Paul's own famous list of three Christian virtues. So look at verse 13. He says, and now these three remain, faith, hope and love but the greatest of these is love. I think we're quite good at talking about love and how precious it is, but do we live up to it? I think that's Paul's challenge in this chapter. Will it be how we think about one another or will we let competitiveness get the better of us? I found it really helpful testing my attitudes against these verses, particularly those in verses four to seven. One day, we'll see Jesus face to face and experience his perfect love forever. In the meantime, do you think he wants his church to be a competitive place or a loving place? He wants a loving church. So let's heed that call and let's pray now for that. Our Father God, we thank you for love. And we thank you for how you have displayed that love to us in Jesus. Father, we're sorry that often we're competitive in our spirits. We want to be better than the other person. Lord, help us instead to be patient, kind, not envying, not jealous, not boastful, not proud. Lord, lead us to that truth that we can rejoice in, that gives us a basis for love that is other person centred. Lord, we long for a church that displays this kind of love more and more. Please would you grant that in St Anne's. In Jesus' name.